0: And welcome to the, whenever we feel like it, Industry (laughs) 4.0 Community Podcast, uh, sponsored by IIOT.University and 4.0 Solutions. I am your host with the most, Walker D. Reynolds. Today we got Zach Scriven with me because we are going to be having a conversation about basically three topics. Um, Topic number one is uh, we're going to be talking about the new executive order that just came out. Um, governing artificial intelligence in the United States, um, and actually extending globally through um, strategic global partners. Number two, we're going to talk about uh, the MQTT Summit Conak, put on by HiveMQ in in Munich in December, which I where I'll be speaking. And then we are going to have a conversation about the three part series, which I think is called Forced Hands or whatever it originally started. I was a Walker rant. We're going to be talking about that that conversation and, you know, kind of why that's important and, you know, what do we, what do we take away from it? But with that, Zach, welcome brother. How you been?
1: Good. And this is not the Eric Barnstead rant. This is a new, this is a new rant.
0: Correct. This is definitely not, you know, it's, it's really funny. I actually, you talking about Eric that I got a, I got a DM from somebody, I think it was last week or maybe two weeks ago saying, Hey Walker, you, you're going to want to watch this or listen to it. it was a podcast that Eric was on that um, someone else did with him. And um, Asked he, about he, it. Y- yeah, no, they didn't ask him about it, but they, they, it was clear that the host, you know, was, uh, didn't agree with, uh, you know, some of Eric's positions on OPC, et cetera. You know, actually in the discord server, we've been having, for those of you who don't know, you know, we have an industry four discord discord server that we've been managing, I think since, 2019, 2020, something like that was one of the first community items we ever put in. Um, there's actually a big conversation going on in there right now in the Unified Namespace channel on standards. There's a big conversation about standards because we had Dennis Brandel in the last podcast on talking about ISA 95, S88, uh, S99, and the OPC Foundation. And a lot of the conversation around standards has been, why do we see such low adoption? Like we have all these standards out there, right? I mean, why is it we see such low adoption in the industry of standards? And there's a really good conversation in there about it. I'll hint. It's because if you notice, when you look at standards that are written for industry, the standards that apply universally to all manufacturers are the ones that have the widest adoption. The more specialized the standard
1: it's more competitive edge. Yeah.
0: It, it, it gives you it, it right. It's the more, the same more reason
1: you don't publish your clients, unified namespace in the, right. uh, pharma and in the bakery industry, which right. I know for my, I know for a fact I could testify. I know that client and you're saying it's at 47 sites now for 46. I think, I think the team just right now, they, 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 uh,
0: integrate, a, a, an entire bakery in less than two weeks. Now
1: it's an incredible system, like not yeah. only from the front end and the visualizations, but obviously architecturally to be able to pull that off. Yeah. 80% of the development is up front and yep. then, you know, to scale it. Like, that's what are was saying? It can't scale, but that's exactly what you're doing. Well, and,
0: and what's even crazier, crazier is like when he, when, and we'll talk about this here in a second, but when he was making the comment. That, you know, a bakery food and beverage and pharma enterprise unss don't exist that's why he doesn't show them to you i mean it's preposterous on so many levels but let's talk about the basics. if you
1: could share it you would create a standard but that's part of the competitive edge of what they hired you to do correct
0: when we when we have this conversation about standards in fact jeff noonan um who i have a shit ton of respect for i think jeff is an absolutely brilliant architect um in you know i i have no no issue with jeff at all so don't don't take anything i'm about to say here as um you know i have nothing but like a pr- professional disagreements
1: And he was also incredibly helpful in the community and in discussions as well uh, jeff you could tell he's incredibly smart but we were just having this conversation on discord and in fact i'll i'll go ahead and um
0: let me uh let me read it let me see if i have discord on this on this machine here i think i do actually
1: um dude the fact that he was talking to your client in your, in your discord server, like, <laughs> yeah, really, you know, and there, there
0: was a, there was a bunch of like other messages that really didn't like apply to the conversation, which I didn't like, you know, I didn't read the, the, you know, if you just had like the conversations that we had behind the scenes where we're like, God, I can't believe this guy would say this shit to the client. You know what I mean? And if you don't know what we're talking about, if you go back and you, watch the series forced hands or whatever you know basically it's a three video series where we walk you through this entire conversation um it'll become you know more apparent let me uh let me i'm oh, discord's opening right now i want to read this these message this back and forth that we had we're having a conversation about ISA 95 and standards oh yeah in, uh, the, in the unified namespace channel
1: and 5000 people in the discord server now
0: yeah and I can't remember. I think it's like 40, 40% are active every week. Um, but let me, uh, here, let me just bring it over here. All right. So this is the, we're having a conversation about ISA 95 and um, oh, actually it po- just popped up over here on my machine. All right. So let me, let me grab this. Um, <clears throat> Cause it's, it's actually a very interesting conversation. So, there was a conversation about standards where JS, um, the, this Akos, who's a member of the community said, when it comes to standards and protocols, um, you know, Akos said the issue, the issue with standardization is that it all comes down to semantics. Nowadays, the protocols are not the biggest problem unless you don't ha- already have really old systems. Semantics is the bigger issue. After looking into HiByte and similar tools in detail, they are doing protocol conversion. Yes, but there are many other solutions to that where and he's talking about why HiByte is so profound. OK, and it's because of the, semant- the the ability to create semantic hierarchy on your outputs. That is do protocol conversion, but also data operations to restructure data on the output.
1: JS now works for HiByte, right? He's a product manager
0: at Actually, He's actually the product manager for the Highbyte intelligence hub. Um, so he says, Echo says, they are, however, mixing in semantic mapping to the protocol conversion in a very intuitive way. That bundles together, that bundle together brings the high, pun intended, added value. Standardization of data models are the only thing currently that helps with semantic interoperability and are extremely hard to standardize. No, no shit. They are definitely very hard to standardize. The unified namespace takes a leave it to the user kind of stance, which will always rely on a user or a programmer implemented implementing semantic mapping, which will always fuel a need for high byte like tools to increase productivity and not make a software dev project out of digitalization on the side close to OT. OPC UA has the companion spec, however good or bad, but at least then it's an effort in the right direction step and step nc did also take steps in this direction but the underlying syntax is kind of confusing it worked for step kind of but did not work for step nc automation ml has had no standardized semantics and look how well that turned out can open has standardized semantics profinet also profibus also ethercat borrows semantics from can open and or circos circos has defined semantics modbus has no defined semantics arguably it distinguishes ios and registers but no application level semantics. And I would argue that outside of a Modbus register table where you're breaking apart the various uh, data types, there are definitely no semantics. Protocols intended to be used by the manufacturer of the device, i.e. they have control over both ends of the communication, like S7COM and ADS, have also no application level semantics. From the IT world, USB has defined semantics. RS-232 has not. If you take a look at how a browser displays information, the topmost layer, which is interpreted, HTML, has defined semantics. And I want to say something to Echoes here. The there is no long term, the idea that you would need that the vast majority of data operations will be done by a third-party platform in the middle, that actually reverses. So in a in a brownfield digital transformation, what you have are, and I, I can't remember who said this, but it's a member of the community. Damn it. I, I wanted to give him credit for it. But he said, what he likes to say to organizations is that you have lots of stuff out there talking and no one's listening. In a brownfield environment, you have lots of digital devices out there that's talk, that are talking and no one's listening. And, and the first step in digital transformation is to make sure you connect, collect, store, listen to everything. Then you got to make sense of it, analyze and visualize. So that's where data ops comes in. And then you want to find patterns report and solve. And you also need data ops for that in brownfield. The first thing you got to do is start listening to everything and then you have to format it, you know, using some type of standard. And what we do is we propose, we, we propose using ISA 95 part two for semantic hierarchy, enterprise site, area line cell for your namespace. And then you create functional, descriptional, definitional, and, um, informative namespaces that in, in house your functions. And we use two types of standards. We use what's known as a red standard and a blue standard. So a red standard is the stuff that is predefined by your digital transformation team. It is agreed upon, it is certified, it is enforced via your minimum technical requirements. For example, I may create a red standard for handling OEE. So that'll include all of the instances, the parameters, the uh, registers, the data points, that you need for every OEE namespace. And that would be red. So no matter like
1: where- Prescription.
0: Right, and then you have blue. And blue is the ad hoc stuff. It's the stuff that we don't, right. We don't have a predefined standard, or maybe it's one off. Maybe it's it only applies to a single asset, right? But, or or it might be, you're coming up with a new function for the business that you're only testing in one location. And because it's non-standard, there are rules for you to create a non-standard um standard a non-standard namespace and then what we do is we monitor the infrastructure for all the blue objects and then the digital transformation team through conversations and analysis may decide whether or not to promote that to red and now that becomes standardized and that, and then, and then you update your documentation and you say, when, when doing this function, you're going to do it in this red way, the way Zach built it out
1: in this location, right? So how do you avoid the problem like that governments have where they only create laws, but then never undo old laws and you just get too much bloat? Like, how do you de like vestigial bodies? Like Great you- question. It's the
0: same way that you do, you, way you, you, way you, you ta- test, you test your DR. So what we tell organizations is that every year when you do your disaster recovery test, which you're generally going to do at the end of the year between Christmas and New Year's, that's what most people do. What you're also going to do is you're going to schedule your standards audit. So each year you're going to audit all the standards you have and decide whether they still apply to your organization. You may demote a red standard to blue. You may say, you know what, this is no more, this, this is no longer enforceable. It's op- optional. You also end up with red and blue namespaces together. So I may have a red namespace or object model that has a blue non-standard namespace inside of it. And the only part, the only enterprise, the only part of the data that the enterprise model uses, that the enterprise application uses, is the stuff that's red. The blue stuff's still there, but it doesn't use it, doesn't need it because it's for some other function.
1: How does the red and blue standards apply to when you're using, because that's what I thought you were going to say at first, was using Plug B and MQTT, like, you know, vanilla inside of the same namespace.
0: Right. So in general, in general, and lately we have been in, you know, I would say five, six years ago, We were converting most namespaces. If you were to look at the unified namespace at the enterprise level. So as we coalesce namespaces when we're moving up the infrastructure, when you were to go and look at the master namespace, the unified namespace in the cloud, that was almost always Sparkplug B. Like if you were gonna consume it, you were gonna consume it as a edge of network node from the cloud as a Sparkplug B edge of network node. We have really moved away from that and kept the Sparkplug B down at the site level. And in the cloud, we're vanilla MQTT. Generally, when we're using MQTT for the namespace, which is common, we're generally flat MQTT. So what we have is Sparkplug B from the sites. So edge of network node, edge of network node, edge of network node. And then we have a unified namespace in the broker that's mapping to the Sparkplug. That's generally how we're doing it now. But in the old days, what you would have is flat and spark plug together and then create another spark plug namespace or flat that coalesce the two together that's the way we used to do it but now it's become more we're we're more focused on
1: vanilla mqtt the reason why kind of using the site to convert spark plug namespace and publish into a vanilla namespace at like an enterprise cloud layer correct yes that sounds like but aren't you losing some of those advantages that Sparkplug was giving you, like kind of rolling everything up into one object and the compression for publishing? Or
0: well, you don't lose it at the site level. I mean, because you're you're publishing the site as an edge of network node. You're publishing the site itself. Now, there's a lot of people in the community that keep Sparkplug even lower, so they may not do Sparkplug beyond an asset. So an asset would become a Sparkplug edge of or network a line
1: or something or a, an area.
0: production line or an area. But we're doing it at the site level. Um, here, let me let me get to these. Uh, I want to I want to read this this message here. So after what Echo said, I said, you know, the this is the crux of it right here. Echo nails the protocol conversion. Actually, JS commented and he uh, Jeff Schrader, who's who's at a high bite. He said this is a great way of putting it regarding semantics interoperability takes much more than just protocol conversion. Yes, it does. Protocol conversion is less than 5% of the effort, in my opinion. I totally agree. Protocol conversion, honestly, is the easy part. The harder part is managing what's sent through the protocols, like on the wire. And so my response was, this is the crux of it right here. ACOS nails the protocol conversion in standard con- conversation. But at the end of the day, the data and information models that are sent over the wire are where the rubber meets the road. Standards generally attempt to be everything to everyone, which is why they end up with low adoption. The beauty of unified namespace with PubSub is that you can define on the edge which parts of the standard to use while concurrently bolting on ad hoc definitions and parameters. Red, not red, and blue. Yeah, you can bolt blue onto red, right, um, to standard models. Which standard, is far, which standard you use is far less important than insisting that data and info models account for both standard and non-standard parameters. So it's very important. Say that that, again. So the standard you choose to use, okay, so all the standards that ACOS listed, which standard you choose choose to use to do data modeling is far less important than insisting that the data and information models that you are creating account for both standardized and non-standardized parameters so that they can live together. So when I look at a data model, I may not be looking at a standard data model. I may be looking at a a standard data model plus non-standard uh, parameters, and then the consumer only co- the the enterprise consumer only yeah. consumes the standard stuff. All right, uh, hold on, let me hit do not disturb here because I think this keeps.
1: Why would why would they only consume the standard stuff just for simplicity at the enterprise well, layer? Or
0: yeah, yeah, at the enterprise level, you only you want to consume standard stuff i mean for enterprise class you need standardization right, right. um
1: and so then you roll up your oe at every single facility and you're not necessarily carrying that one facility's making bolts the other facility's making straps
0: yeah th- this is the you know this is the what jeff noonan said so he commented to me and he said walker How do you stop that from becoming an unmanaged nightmare at scale when you have multiple teams across multiple sites all publishing and subscribing without schema enforcement? I've been through that a few times and it's not a fun place to be. MQTT lacks a schema registry for the payloads and the topics. All right. And so what I said was to Jeff. Red models, red models, or you guys may have heard me use the term heterogeneous or homogenous. So heterogeneous is blue, homogenous is red. Okay. Heterogeneous means um, diverse and unified and homogenous means standard, right? It, everything's the same. So red means,
1: by heterosexual and homosexual.
0: Correct, right? So uh, what I say is red models, the standard models are the only models that need to be managed and blue models are tracked for quality and for and for potential promotion to red that's how you manage it lacking a schema registry in mqtt is a problem yes but is currently managed with external services that monitor the broker namespaces and leverage regex for pattern matching so all you have to do is for every red model you create you create a regex pattern match and then you just scan the broker namespace for it. That's how we do it externally.
1: So that's okay. how you enforce that red model and you can identify people that are not adhering to it. Correct. Exactly.
0: So this is why MQTT, but I follow up with this is part of the reason I'm going to the MQTT summit Conak in in uh, Munich in December 7th. That's one of the announcements we have. And this is one of the reasons I'm going there is I'm going to go and pitch to other MQTT um, thought leaders and decision makers on why it is we need to extend the standard to support methods so or a GraphQL plugin so that we can query the namespace. Right now, you have to build an external, an external service to do it, right? And those services work great. We've been doing them for years, and we're just really used to it. But it'd be great if it was just supported in the MQTT standard, okay? So I said, this is why MQTT needs methods and or a GraphQL plugin, for querying the namespace without the need for external services. It isn't difficult to manage if the external services are built correctly. Schema enforcement outside of red models is completely unnecessary. What matters is minimum technical requirements for OEMs and developers that enforce the rules for application. It is imperative that citizen developers solve their problems in service of the org's digital strategy In the same infrastructure that the standardized business operates this -hmm. is how this is how digital infrastructure solutions applications remain agile and adjust with the business's needs and then i want to say i want to say one other thing so jeff noonan also said on a second response to the same message i sent he said isa 95 has low adoption because the original intent of the standard is solving a problem that few people or companies care deeply about that is plug and play integration between COTS, ERP, and COTS MOM. Honestly, who cares when, in the 30 years of the standard, neither the ERP vendors or the MOM vendors have adopted the standard for integration. ISA 95 has also has low adoption because pub/sub architectures are relatively new in manufacturing, and data hub architectures are even newer. But the standard schemas defined by Part Two and Four are well suited to defining the schemas that get published and subscribed and even more suited to how you store all those messages in a data hub. History should not be taken as an accurate prediction of the future. I would argue, first off, I didn't say this in my follow-up, but uh, history is a very accurate predictor of the future, okay? Um, Without mitigation, so if you look at at history, without mitigation or innovation, you can predict the future. I mean, this is, we do this. That's why you
1: bought the cameras with your tool budget.
0: (laughs) Correct. This is, this machine learning, machine learning, has demonstrates that to us. Yeah. If, if history shouldn't be taken as an accurate prediction of the future, the machine learning doesn't work. Pattern matching doesn't work. What there has to be is some mitigation or innovation that will change the future.
1: You want blue objects in your organization. There's something to be said about the number of blue objects and the rate of them popping yeah, up.
0: Yeah, if you have a low number of blue objects, you have a low rate of innovation. It's easily measured. OK, here's what I here's what I said, though, to that response. I said to Jeff, Jeff, I agree about 90 percent here. I think part four, ISA 95, part four is completely useless and will need a complete rewrite. Part two is the only part of ISA 95 that has any value for industry four. the reason why is because it's completely decoupled from part one. And part one is what defines Purdue. OK, so it, part two is the only part of ISA 95 that's decoupled from part one. All right. I would also add that many OEMs have implemented ISA-95 incorrectly. So instead, what they do is they try to enforce models over create solutions that consume events in complete context, which, by the way, Dennis Brandl, who sits on the committee, told, told and acknowledged was a limitation of the implementation. Most people are implementing ISA-95 wrong. They are trying to enforce models from ISA-95 when they're building solutions when what they're supposed to be doing is creating an infrastructure to consume events in their full context okay and that has driven low adoption on the user side great comments jeff all right so let me um you know let me say this that the MQTT summit right we're going to go i'm going to the MQTT summit which is called Conak in munich on december 7th i'll be speaking uh, Who's uh, that uh on? kutsai it's a hive oh. mq oh i'm um, yep yeah, HiveMQs put it on. It was supposed to happen over the summer, but it turned out there was like a a big festival going on in Germany that um, they forgot about, and there were no hotels <laughs> available. So they had to postpone, and now we're doing it in December. Okay. So, But it's a who's who. If you look at the people who are speaking, it's a who's who. Um, and I'm primarily going because I'm going to be showing how it is we build external services to browse MQTT broker namespaces so that we can query the namespace right now we do that externally. We and primarily we're using regex to do it, but um, the, and it's effective, but th- that's, sh- that should become standardized. In fact, what I would argue is
1: regex is the pattern matching like characters and percents like to yeah. match.
0: Yeah. So look for what, like you could, you know, we have a pattern. Um, basically we're iterating through an MQTT broker namespace and we're looking for a pattern. And that pattern is, uh, where you see o, where you see line forward slash oee forward slash infeed, that should that data model should look like this. We're doing a check, and we're saying these five parameters in infeed are the five parameters we need for this piece of software, right? Um, so anyway, the part of the reason I'm going to the MQTT summit is so I can pitch um, extensions to the MQTT standard. All right. With that, let's go to this executive order um, on that President Biden just signed yesterday. I want to. Why are we bringing it up? Uh, So I made some predictions. There was a video we did where we said, like, open is in serious trouble or whatever. And I was talking about, you know, with artificial intelligence, I, I came up with some predictions. And I said, mark my words, by November of this year, by November of 2023, we will see our first legislation in the United States. Um, governing artificial intelligence and sure enough on October 30th that an executive order came through that was signed by president Biden. Um, And I'm, we're just going to kind of go through what that, what is, what does it mean? Okay. Uh, Hint. I don't think it means anything yet. (laughs) Um, I I think a lot of it is just uh, theater, but um, what will it mean long-term? So today, President Biden is issuing a landmark executive order to ensure that America leads the way in seizing the promise and managing the risks of artificial intelligence. The executive order establishes new standards for AI safety and security. It protects Americans' privacy. It advances equity and civil rights. It stands up for consumers and workers. It promotes innovation and competition. It advances American leadership around the world and more. As part of the Biden Harris administration's comprehensive strategy for responsible innovation, the executive order builds on previous actions the president has taken, including work that led to voluntary commitments from 15 leading companies to drive safe, secure, and trustworthy development of AI. You know, it uh, was it really voluntary. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, I'm just going to read the high level. So the executive order has new standards for AI safety and security. Um It requires that developers of the most powerful AI systems share their safety test results and other critical information with the U.S. government. Okay. Um, I'm not going to comment, you know, give commentary on whether or not I think that's good or bad. Um, Number two, it develops standards, tools, and tests to help ensure that AI systems are safe, secure, and trustworthy. Okay. Well, what is the definition of safe, secure, and trustworthy? Number three, protect against the risks of using AI to engineer dangerous biological materials. Uh, Number four, protect Americans from AI-enabled fraud and deception by establishing standards and best practices for detecting AI-generated content and authenticating official content. I like that one. Uh, Establish an advanced cybersecurity program to develop AI tools to find and fix vulnerabilities in critical software. Um, Don't see the value there. Uh, order the development of a national security memorandum that directs further actions on AI and security. And then section two is protecting Americans' privacy. So uh, bullet point one, protect Americans' privacy by prioritizing federal support for accelerating the development and use of privacy-preserving techniques. Number two, strengthen privacy-preserving research and technologies. Number three, evaluate how agencies collect and use commercially available information. And number four, develop guidelines for federal agencies to evaluate the effectiveness of privacy preserving techniques. Let me first off by saying I I don't I don't think government is really good at a whole lot. Um, And I think government will be really bad at this in general. In my experience, I don't want the people who run the same people who run the IRS or run the Department of Motor Vehicles to be the people who are, you know, playing playing in the world of AI where the Definitely world of,
1: don't give the IRS more AI.
0: Right. Yeah. It's it's I don't I I mean government's basically good at nothing unless they have a financial incentive to be good at it. That's why we're good at war. That's why we're good at policing. That's why the police are good at policing. The more tickets they write, the more they a lot of that money gets funneled back to their agencies. So there's a financial incentive to be good at policing because you get paid from being good at policing. Um, but For example, the, you know, the, the IRS, the, the department of motor vehicles, you know, they're, they're really, really shitty at what they do. I mean, how often do you go into a government building and you're like, oh, these guys are really, you know, these are, they're fucking, this is really good. Like they're really good here. So I'm always very, very skeptical of government. And it's not because I think people in government are bad. It's just, they don't have incentives to be great. Okay. All right. The next one is, and this is the one I got the biggest problem with. It's advancing equity and civil rights. Um so yeah, irresponsible what does that mean Yeah so so here are the three provide clear guidance to landlords federal benefits programs and federal contractors to keep ai algorithms from being used to exacerbate discrimination address algorithmic discrimination through training technical assistance and coordination between the department of justice and federal civil rights offices on best practices for investigating and prosecuting civil rights violations related to ai Ensure fairness throughout the criminal justice system by developing best practices on the use of uh, AI in sentencing, parole, and probation. Um, you know, the 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 issue I have here, uh, it says advancing equity. Th- this is a sociological discussion. If you want to skip, go ahead and skip five minutes. Why is it we have have and have nots? This is not a technical discussion. This is, comes from my sociology background. Why is it we have have or ha- and have nots? In our society okay well for several reasons the reason we have globally why you have people who are well off and those who are starving is because there aren't enough resources to go around on the earth okay if you take the total GDP of the entire globe divided by the complete population you end up with sixteen thousand dollars per person okay there are not enough resources to go around okay that's just the simple fact I mean, it's it's easy math, okay? So either you have everyone starving, like you do in communist <laughs> nations, you know, or you have or you have a group not starving who are investing capital in innovation that improves the lives of all, okay? Um, it doesn't mean that we should accept starvation. It doesn't mean we should be happy with those things. Well, what the the there's a myth out there that, for example, when we look at like uh, the pay gap, the gender pay gap what is it? You know, there's a, 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 neat way of manipulating the gender pay gap to say women get paid 78, per, 78 cents on the dollar compared to men for the same job. Well, that's not true because when you control for experience and education, women make more in nearly all positions. Okay. That, that 0.78 is because women in, in general, women choose jobs that, that, you know, they, they choose different types of jobs. Um, they take time off to have children. Um, and, and, and men on the high end, the men on the high end of the distribution are much more likely to work much longer hours and Basically make their
1: sociopathic.
0: Right. Yeah. And they make, they make their job their entire life. And, and, um, and that's how they end up making more money. There's a, there's a lot of, there are a lot of social myths that go into this type of stuff, this type of, equity and, and, um, you know, this is where CRT and DEI and all that jazz comes from. Um, I am for equal opportunity and, and I don't believe that, you know, discrimination in, in basically all forms is an abomination, but I mean, I'm 49 years old now and I, my, my kids and I've had this conversation. I have openly seen discrimination twice in my life T- two times where, what it is that gets preached to us that that we that women and, and minorities are are discriminated against on mass, you know, by the the mean nasty, you know, uh, patriarchy. I have literally seen open discrimination twice in my life, and it was both when I was in college. It was in the same place. When I first moved to Raleigh, North Carolina, um, I I bowled in a bowling center in North Raleigh on Thursday nights. And it was like a very, very busy bowling center. And I never noticed that everybody in that bowling center was white. Like, I never noticed. It never stood out to me that everyone in that bowling center was white. There was one black guy in there. There was one person of color. And it was the guy who he played in. um, He went to NC State and he played in.
1: This person of color, even in the political, I don't even think that's politically correct. Oh, it doesn't. I mean, at the end, of the, I don't even try. I don't even try to keep up with. <laughs> it just keeps changing. <laughs> right. Yeah, it
0: just keeps changing. But the, it was the guy. He played in police academy. He was a bit. Uh, what the hell was his name? Uh, hold on, I'll tell you who it was. Uh, it was. It was. It's, it's like that here Tab- in Utah. Tab-, Tab Thacker. Okay, so Tab Thacker. He pl- he played. He went to North Carolina State, and um, he. Bowled in my bowling center. He bowled in the same bowling center I did, but he was the only person of color in that bowling center. I never noticed it. And then one day these four uh, African-American men, they were students. I think they went to UNC central. They came into the bowling center and some of the old guys walked up to them and told them they were in the wrong bowling center. Your bowling center is down the street. Like now this is like 1990. I grew up in upstate New York. Like I didn't see this kind of shit. You know what I mean? This is like 1994 or something. And I was like absolutely floored that this kind of shit still existed. All right. I, I mean, I was floored. That's the only time I, I saw where I saw it overtly. And then I saw it one other time, my very first job, my boss, there was. I worked with an older black guy. We started at the same time. And um, at the end of my first week, he, my boss calls me in and he tells me, uh, you're getting a raise and, and I'm probably 20 years old at the time. And I'm like, "Ah, oh, I'm doing a great job. And he goes, well, and he goes, I can't have you making the less, less money than this guy. Like, so the, the older black guy who clearly had more, he goes, I can't have you making less money than him. And Josh, you're probably, yeah, you, Josh, you're, you're probably really going to learn cut more. Up. Josh, you're probably gonna have to cut this whole section because I'm pretty sure no one's gonna want us to put that in there. But
1: uh, <laughs> you're probably gonna have to cut this whole section. But, <laughs> but, um, well, because it, there will then be people in the comments that say like, "Well, you're not at fill in the blank. I've experienced it. You, right. know. you have privilege. Blah blah
0: blah." Um, all right. So anyway, advancing advancing equity in civil rights. Um, and then there's a standing up for consumers, patients, and students. What I would say is this, what do you need to know? What does this mean? I, I think it means very little. I think most of it's theater. I think what it is, is it's the first step towards formal legislation that comes out of Congress to regulate artificial intelligence. And by the way, regulation is wholly appropriate. I mean, it, it really is. The people who control, the, the part of that executive order that I, I like the most, which I think is most appropriate is in the beginning, It's developing, um, requiring that developers of the AI systems share their safety test results and other critical information. Now, I don't know if I want them to share it with the U.S. government, but I'm much I I want them to share it with a independent third body that peer reviews their work and agrees on it. You know what I mean? Anyway, that's a big, you know, a big deal. All right. I think this is the beginning of
1: AI wars. Politically, you mean? Like you know, the cold war was like the Star Wars. Like, this is the AI, like, the next you know, war will be fought in AI. All
0: right, let's go, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this, um, this three part series we just did. So, did you watch all three of the videos? Zach and I have not talked
1: about this yet. We brought it, I see. I did watch the most recent one, number three, and I watched the first one. I'm not sure if I caught the second one because you're pumping out a lot. It's just giving you free ammunition for good content.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so what
1: did you think? What was your takeaway?
0: First well, off, first yeah, off, I, you- I,
1: I, I was surprised when you shared who it was, you know, or I guess I wasn't surprised, but I didn't expect that. It's like someone, I mean, we, we had offered, like we allowed them to present their old platform. I guess the name changed, but like to, to members of our community.
0: Right. I mean, you know, I, do you first off do you agree with because i didn't ta- i didn't consult with you on whether Please, we were
1: gonna- i think it's a personal thing well it's definitely uh it's not limited to this one individual you're saying that this is an industry-wide thing where you know yep that upsets you and i just think that was a- uh absolutely disrespectful the way that that um you know person engaged with what, the, what do um, you
0: think um, what do you think about his explanations so by
1: the way he's just lying to you he's just straight okay. lying to you <laughs> In the last email I said to him lying to himself. I'm you know, he's gaslighting, you know, he's like trying to rewrite history, not really addressing anything. So here, let me let me tell you what chat GPT says.
0: Okay. So uh I so somebody messaged me and said, Hey, what you ought to do is put the conversation in ChatGPT and ask Chat GPT to interpret what he said for you. So I did that. I said, Here is a <laughs> I said, here's a message sent to me by a client. Summarize it for me. And so ChatGPT reads it and says, the client has been in talks with this company and specifically with one of the owners. The client is intrigued by their um, technology of a headless backend system using GraphQL and GraphDB for business operations. However, there are concerns about the pricing model and its high cost and its strict adherence to to, uh, standards, which seem to hinder its success. The CEO indicated that this customer's industry market size might not be significant enough for them and warns against going Which forward.
1: Is what you said, you're basically saying, fuck you to 90% of manufacturers. Right.
0: right. And with a suboptimal UNS solution, the CEO also critiques your mastermind suggestions and claims there are no existing enterprise UNS systems for certain industries. Which client-
1: we're based on completely false claims right. about saying that we teach or, you, you know, in the mastermind you teach like doing enterprise business logic with ignition scripting, which is like, where did you even get that? That's not even, you know, that's not even a thing, you know?
0: So I asked him, I said, I asked ChatGPT. I said, what is the CEO's intent with his message? And the CEO's intent with his message is to number one, emphasize the value and demand of their solution. So by pointing out the pull from big enterprise customers and comparing that industry's market size to the profit of the other industries they cater to, the CEO is highlighting the high demand and significance of their product in other lucrative markets. Number 2. Highlight the importance of proper data infrastructure planning. The CEO criticizes the budget planners at their at that company for not adequately, adequately planning for a data infrastructure, suggesting they are making a common oversight seen in other new ventures. Number 3. Warn against implementing incomplete solutions. The CEO strongly advises against starting production with an incomplete UNS solution stressing that it will result in long-term challenges. First off, a UNS solution is never complete. It's growing. It's agile. It lives.
1: Okay. If it's four, up, you can fix it. You know, <laughs> it's, it it,
0: it, it expands and grows with your business and it evolves with your business. Number four, forecast increased future costs. He warns that costs could double in 2025 if a decision is made to switch then mainly due to the need to correct prior mistakes. And then number five, critique your expertise. The CEO suggests that your suggestions as represented in Mastermind may not be trustworthy. He further insinuates that you might not have the necessary experience or successful enterprise UNS systems in certain industries. Overall, the CEO's message is a mix of asserting the value of their product, cautioning against shortcuts in planning and implementation, and casting doubt on any alternative solution or advice. And so then I said, My interpretation is that the CEO is trying to strong arm the client into two things. One, get a lot more money for their initiative. And two, stop listening to Walker. What do you think? With the nuances present in the CEO's message. Number one, get more money for their initiative. The CEO emphasizes the high demand for their product from other big enterprise customers and positions the bourbon industry's market size as potentially insufficient. Make sure you take out bourbon, Josh. By highlighting the cost of $212,000 per site per month and projecting a doubling in this cost in the future, he seems to be pushing for a larger investment. Now he's not the client highlighted that, that site per month. Um, actually, Josh, what I'm going to do is start over right now with the, your interpretation. Ready? Your interpretation aligns with the nuances present in the CEO's message. Number one, get more initiative money for their initiative. The CEO emphasizes the high demand for their product from other big enterprise customers and positions this customer's industry market size as potentially insufficient. By highlighting the cost and projecting a doubling of this cost in the future, he seems to be pushing for a larger investment now. And number two, stop listening to Walker. The direct critique of your mastermind suggestions and the claim about the non-existence of certain enterprise UNS systems in your portfolio serves as a way to discredit your expertise. By doing this, the CEO is trying to diminish your influence over the client and have them rely more on his company's perspective and solutions. Your assessment appears accurate based on the CEO's conveyed sentiments. He seems intent on asserting the superiority and value of his solution while casting doubt on alternative perspectives and solutions, especially those offered by
1: you. Well, I, what I would do is I would I would put his rebuttal or his response to the initial you know situation. Back, you know, where he's like basically lying <laughs> and then asked chat to
0: Actually, let's do that real quick. Let me go.
1: But do it in a new thread where you're not, where you don't actually prompt it. Like, where, cause you're seeding it now with your interpretation. Yeah, yeah. Do yeah. a new prompt where you give it the initial conditions and then you give it. Okay. And then now this was, you know, give, give me your interpretation. And they'd be like, now this was his response to. Yep. Uh, cause I think. Let's do yeah. it. I've had it where someone was gaslighting me and I had to go to chat I'm like, yo, this is what this person said. Like, what, what, the, what is this? And then they're like, this is an example of gaslighting. <laughs> and I had to screenshot it and send it to that person. I'm like, this is where I know this is too toxic. You know, I do, I do feel like, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not unbiased in this situation because, you know, I had a person, like, I had interaction with this individual too, that just, was just like left me feeling disgusting afterwards. You know, it's just like, how could you, I wouldn't want to, I'm like, man, I was like, I would not want to be this person's wife. You know, like that is just, uh, it's like so, so obnoxious to compare, you know, the market cap of the industry to the profit of your other clients. Like, so what, you know, like, are you going to help me or not? (laughs) You know, like,
0: um, and then, uh, okay, so I'm I'm asking ChatGPT to look at it. I'm mean, I'm only doing this because somebody asked me. Um, he, okay,
1: I, I mean, he was really trying to twist it on you. Uh,
0: yeah, no, no question. I mean, all right, here we go.
1: This is like we're not trying to make this a uh punching, you know, a a you know a session where we just beat him up. You know, like, what are you trying to get out of the out of the discussion here?
0: <laughs> all right, so it just says, yeah, this.
1: Like where he said, like where he said, oh, that is a, uh, I was uh, making a tongue in cheek, like saying that in response to just a boldface lie, you know, like.
0: Yeah, it says, uh, so he basically says, so interpretation, he's clarifying, here's the alignment. Uh, ChatGPT says, his response does not align with the original message re- regarding the concerns over the budget and the scalability of the UNS architecture for enterprise level applications. Furthermore, he is now emphasizing that his remarks were not personal, suggesting a willingness to maintain a professional dialogue, which does not align with his original message. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a, like a nice way to say it. he's lying, bro. Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay. So, anyway, that's what Chad lying. said. So, let, let let's say this. Do you agree? Yeah. I mean, I really went back and forth on whether to, you know, do this
1: publicly. I mean, if I like, if I was, yeah, if I found out. I would not want to work with someone talking to customers like that. I would not want to work with someone talking to me like that. Like, yeah. So let me let me say this. I've received a lot of private messages,
0: um, a lot of DMs about this subject, thanking me. Obviously, there's nobody who's been like, "Dude, what are you doing?"
1: So did did the client go back and get more money for this platform?
0: uh, No, no, no. The client, what you know, so so just so you know, when the client reached out to me, I said. Hey, um, he wanted to talk to me first. And I said, you know, we shouldn't talk. I said, I, I, I will need to go public with this, with your permission. Um, and if you're uncomfortable with that, we shouldn't have a conversation. And he said, no, I'm I'm comfortable with it. Let's talk.
1: Most people would not be cool with that, by the way. <laughs> well, you know. they're basically
0: outing this guy. Well, his motivation was this. He and he, you know, we had a long conversation. And at the end of the day, what he was trying to do was figure out a way to mend,
1: you know, there's, with, no, there's no mend like, well, the ideal situation that's not happening. You know, this person right. is not reasonable, you know, like,
0: yeah, well, I mean, even if you try to place devil's advocate, which that's where I always start, you know, okay, you know, you, you never look for negative intention where ignorance or um ignorance or likely uh, it's like hawkins razor or something yeah, it's, is the likely is the likely reason, you know what I mean? And so in general, I don't look, I don't look to see, I don't find offense. I It takes me a while to see that someone was actually coming at me sideways, you know, because I, I generally give people the benefit of the doubt. I don't, I don't think because someone says something untoward, they had negative intentions. You know what I mean? That's not how my mindset is.
1: Ostensibly this person in, met this client in, the industry 4.0 discord server which is managed by you. So they're like yeah. on one hand, bet. now it's possible that I think they also created a discord server or something, or they met somewhere else, but like the odds no, are he's, he's, just he's just in, in there sniping. sniping. He's just in there like sniping your clients and like talking shit on you, which is kind of bullshit. You know, you should call them out on that.
0: Well, I will say this. I, I'm okay with people talking shit. I don't have any, if, 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 if somebody, but it, it needs you to be need based to back on- it up. Yeah, it needs to be based in fact. Like if I I, I have no problem admitting I'm wrong. Like yeah, yeah. anybody who works with me will tell you, I got no problem. I I say to my team all the time, it's not your job to tell me yes. It's your job to fucking challenge me. If you think I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. Because that's the only way I'm gonna get better. You know, I don't I don't want people to follow me fucking blindly. It just so happens that I'm not wrong very often. I mean, I was wrong way more earlier in my career, you know, through experience. I'm wrong less and less and less. Right. And so I don't have any problem with someone talking shit or raising concerns, but what he said was baseless. You know what I mean? And, and in reckless, totally reckless.
1: I mean, you know how many people are like talk very highly of those, of your educational programs that you put a lot of money and work into and have a team that, you know, works around the clock to put on. That you put years of, like we put years of effort into putting out content for free at a loss to even be able to build that community in the first place. And then someone's just going to come in and talk shit based on not even, there's not even like a remote link of truth there. You know? Yeah.
0: There's, this is a, this is a member of the community. I mean, uh, ostensibly he's a member of the community because he's and in, if the, he
1: was in the mastermind program and then talk shit, that would be completely that, different. Right. If he was in mastermind and talk shit, that'd be different. <laughs> be Where's different. that person? That but, person doesn't okay. like, you know, it's, uh, but, you know, I, I even, like like, 99% satisfaction rating or something.
0: Four, some four point four point nine, I think uh, 4.899 nine is what it is. And so we, we round it to 4.9 out of five. So on a scale of one to five, it's a four point eight nine nine. The average, so when we send out the survey at every ever mastermind, the average rating is four point nine.
1: And our and our churn is four percent. And that and he's talking shit on the program because it's basically teaching someone to like how to in parts you're teaching people how to avoid predatory platforms like that. Well, you know. Yeah. Well, let's say this. Like so for example We're kind of advocating for more of a build your own approach, kinda
0: which yeah, does save I, the client money. What I'm saying is, is here's, here's something that has always frustrated me. Okay. You in a, in a manufacturing environment, where, where does the competitive edge in manufacturing come from for the vast number of manufacturers? Where do what, what, what is the competitive advantage? Is it brand? No, it's, it's process. It is the continuous improvement of process. It's the reduction of costs of raw materials. It's the reduction in cost so and. talking
1: about like commodity manufacturing, not like General Electric engines, like for like jet engines, for example.
0: Yeah, I'm talking about. I'm t- what I'm talking about is that would be more IP kind of. The vast majority of manufacturing is discrete manufacturing. Well, process is IP, is what right. you're saying. Right. What I'm saying is is that the competitive advantage in most manufacturer, is is coming up with a, for example, let's look at the steel flexible,
1: flexible packaging. Right. Flexible,
0: flexible packaging um the steel industry i mean any any type of where it's discrete manufacturing, okay the a steel company makes more money by paying especially if they recycle the steel, so they're buying scrap steel, melting it down and creating new metallurgies for new products. they make their money they, they here's how they get better. they get better by keeping their labor costs lower. Reducing the cost of the raw material they pay to create the steel, reducing their energy costs, reducing their scrap, increasing their yield, and shortening their lead times. Okay? All that's like efficiency-based stuff. Right? Okay. You don't – the issue I've always had with digital, with people who are trying to drive digital, is what they want to do is they want to predefine optimal. But optimal is a function of where I am right now. Like continuous improvement is a, is a gradual fine tuning of a process. It's incremental improvement. Are we ever satisfied ever at any time? Are we ever satisfied with our performance? No, because you can always perform better. We can always perform better. Okay. So, so <laughs> what most, what most organizations try to do from the ERP layer, <laughs> what they try to do with digital infrastructure is predefined optimal in some type of, standard or model Can measure against that correct no opt what what we measure against an optimal is is always a moving target our digital infrastructure will always be a moving target it's always going to grow it's it it it's like uh it's always it, going to be a combination of red blocks and blue blocks correct if you look at me as a weight as a weightlifter right it, i have more capillaries in my pectoral muscles and in my biceps than the average person does. Why? Because as I become more and more efficient as a lifter, as I lift more and more and I become more and more efficient, I grow capillaries where I need them to help me with the efficiency of a weight of a lift. Okay. To bring oxygen to the muscles, carry and and to process glycogen from the muscles to move. Uh, a, A unified namespace, a digital infrastructure is a living, breathing growing and dying thing elements grow, they die. Right. That the idea, when people say, well, what we need to do is we need to, you know, this is where Jeff Noonan and I disagree on infrastructure from a technical perspective. I am more on the organic side of digital infrastructure based on rules. Okay. So we predefined minimum technical requirements. And as long as everyone's operating within those rules, we offer flexibility in the way that we implement, as long as we're implementing blue and not red. You could blue is the place for you to try whatever you want. When people, when you try to implement just purely standardized infrastructure, blue's not possible. Mm-hmm. Right, so where right. does the innovation come from? Mm-hmm.
1: That's my that's that's my platform point. silos and stuff. Right. That's
0: where that's where you become siloed. That's where you become stifled. That's all my argument is. So my argument has always been. Well, you argue to build your core MES, not buy. Correct, and 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 y- there are things you buy, and you need to plug them into the things you build. Right.
1: Okay, so I want to I want to build an MES for my um, my uh, detailing business, specifically around uh, PPF or paint protection film. It's kind of how's like it, a how's it, process. It's kind of like a well, so not manufacturing of the film. We're buying the raw materials of the film, which is Lightning. like 50 foot rolls, but yeah. we're using a industrial plotter to cut out, um, templates and kits and stuff. And that's our yield. And we're trying to like maximize basically the profit per foot of that raw material, including labor costs, including.
0: And you know, isn't right now the profit high because there are so few people doing it, but if there were a lot more people doing it.
1: Um, that's a good question. I mean, there's a big variability in quality of film, and so that's one thing. And then, but like the, I, I don't think anyone's really looking at it that way. You know, um, like if you if you have a really inexperienced technician, if they, fu- you know, that might be good because then your costs are low. But then if they mess up on the cut, uh, you know, running the plotter, now you just wasted, you know, a hundred dollars of film or whatever. You know, so well, what what or is just, or, just you- even, or just even measuring. How much film did I even use for that last kit that I sold for twenty five hundred? You know, what is the margin on PPF? It's like four times your film cost, so it is like seventy five percent gross. But then you have your labor ta- cost on top of that, so it it is a pretty profitable service. Um, and that's where these kits come into play because you know detailers they don't want to go spend ten thousand dollars on a plotter, so they source these pre-cut kits online, which are a lot easier to install because they've already got everything cut out.
0: Yeah, what What happens when the cost of the film goes up because the demand's gone up? And what happens when the cost that customers are willing to pay goes down because there are more people who are
1: doing it at a lower rate? You have to innovate, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there's really two business models. There's one is installing it and being like the shop that, you know, you come to us, we'll install, you know, we'll cut the kit, install it. And then the other model is more of an e-commerce model where you're selling the kit and they're either installing it themselves or working with a detailer to have it, you know, them install it. So I really think it's more scalability in the e-commerce model where, you know, like you said, the services can get kind of squeezed a little bit, but I mean, it is kind of, there is, there is uh, something to say about like quality of like, you know, you're not just going to want to go with the cheapest installer because then once, if they go out of business, then when you need to warranty it like they're not even there you know so what i
0: what i've always learned this is what i've always learned okay when it comes to install that you know trades you should always get three quotes and pick the middle one right always you should never go with the person who's the cheapest ever yeah ever 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 you should never ever 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 pick the cheapest quote
1: yeah. Yeah. For PPF, you don't really want the cheapest because there's like your install will not be good. And someone who's doing a good install is not going to be the cheapest, you know? So. Right. But if you're the um, really most expensive, you might be overpaying a little bit, you know? So. But yeah, I want to I want to treat it like a manufacturing environment where I'm tracking OE. And so that's what I was thinking like, oh, that'd be sweet to be able to, like, see how much profit we're making per foot of film, you know? So are you are you cutting the templates for other that's that's what I not right now, but that's what my goal would be to empower other detailers who are like in my situation who like let's just say they're operating out of their garage, they have Tesla clients that want this service. So I will ship I will cut out the the template so I have the I will buy the rolls in bulk. I'll cut out the template, ship it to them and they'll install it for the, the client and they'll charge the labor, you know, they'll charge the full package. And then, you know, the, have the, you seen, have the, you seen
0: the, have you seen the new model three? Dude, it's so beautiful. It's crazy. it's crazy. It's a lot more like the model S
1: now. With the rear screen and then the perforated seats and. It's wider. So it's wider wheelbase. Ooh. Yeah. Nice. yeah. 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 Now I'm going to be driving the old model three around. It's it's all good. I still love my car. Like it's, it's fucking sick, but.
0: It's, I uh, had a, we were at the rogue invitational this past weekend and one of our athletes was there his name is don treglia so he's um he's a full strength.ai athlete and he's um he's he competed at the american deadlift championships he's fucking enormous he's six foot three 420 pounds or something just he's got the biggest back i've ever seen in my life he's just a huge dude and um he, he i we were leaving the rogue and we we had our our big truck there to drive him around so we had a big F two fifty diesel, because I mean, guys that big, they have trouble fitting in regular cars. It, it's really funny. Like the video of Brian Shaw trying to get into a, uh, I think he tried to get into a Ferrari or something. It was like really funny, like trying to see. him <laughs> Anyway, uh, I ha- Don barely fit in my model S. Like we had to put the seat all the way down, move the seat all the way to the back. And then we had to lean the seat back so he could clear his back was so big, his back. When he got in to put his back on the seat, his back is so thick that he couldn't swing his legs in. He like he had to squeeze his legs in. And then once he was in, he was in. But it was because <laughs> his his upper body is just so thick. His back is so thick. And I'm like, and I thought the Model S was huge. So, obviously, for those of you who are out there that are 6'3", 420 pounds, I would say the Model S is probably not for you. But
1: <laughs> All right. So, how is Full Strength AI
0: going? Um, It's going really good. Like, so, for... You know, we are our next big, uh, so here's what we've been doing since, um, Shaw classic in August, we were again, a title sponsor. We were at the expo. We actually set the vision system up and I think we had something like 500 lifters deadlift while we were there. We got, yeah, we signed like 130 beta testers. That was in August. Then we went to the American deadlift championships in Orlando in September And, um, I think we had another hundred lift there. It was a smaller event. And then we were at rogue this past weekend and we're our next event is the Southern Illinois strength expo right now with the vision system. We are, we've built a new front end. Um, you know, we're continually expanding the, the user interface, um, models are getting much more reliable, um, and we're developing our mobile app.
1: That's what we're currently working on right now. You're just on collect, connect, and store, and you're working on visualize and analyze. We,
0: we analyze, visualize, but the visualize, uh, so analyze, visualize is is still in development. So it's, we're we're still going through the iterations to make sure analyze, visualize is right, and we already have the find patterns report solve like that's the crux. So it's really more for the col- use
1: case of the deadlift,
0: deadlift, bench press, and squat. So, and then, um,
1: is the, is it the similar model, but for those three just trained with different data or what? Yep. Trained. uh,
0: So we're using media pipe as the pose estimation model. So that's how we're just identifying what position a human's in. And then we have separate models that are trained for squat, um, deadlift and bench press to calculate
1: velocity force. How are you filtering out the noise in that, um, that model? uh, like the pose estimation model, if there's any noise, like if all of a sudden, like the shoulders go like this, you know, like, because it, how do you filter that out when you're
0: so we, so the, (laughs) you're you're like, we're
1: working on that
0: now. So the, 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 um, if, if the model is 90% or greater, Uh, if confidence is 90% or greater, then we use We use the data. If not, we don't. This is why there are times where, on the deadlift, for example, uh, we have a one rep max predictor on the far right. There are times where we don't; nothing gets plotted on that chart, and it's because the prediction, the confidence level of that prediction, is not greater than ninety percent. We literally filter that filter that piece out. Okay. And now, and that's actually an argument you pass in, so you can actually say, "Oh, plot anything that's fifty percent or greater," but ninety is kind of what we work with. And then what we do is we store the data that got dropped and then the data scientists go back in and take a look and see, okay, was that anomaly or, you know, is there some issue with our, our training? So it's very reliable. I mean, it's, you know, and
1: ultimately, how do you plan on productizing it and bringing it to market?
0: So it's a really good question. So I'll, I'll tell you some of the things that have been going on here. So we are working with the military. So a couple of like basically, these guys, these guys who are in, um, troop readiness, uh, approached us and said, you know, told me some stuff about like only about 80% of the U S military is ready for battle at any given time. And the vast majority of the reason is because of injuries, they get training injuries, they get in the gym. Okay. So what they'd like and it, yeah, because they're overdoing it. Isn't that crazy? I had no idea that that was the case. Um, <laughs> Also the guy who developed the strike zone for major league baseball. um, He reached out to me. He's actually a, um, he's based in Arizona. He's an industry guy. He was in manufacturing for a long time. So we are going to be, we actually brought him on board as a consultant. So he's consulting with us on the go-to-market strategy. And we are currently working on training models for basketball um, and football to track athlete movement across, um, their fields so that we can calculate, um, you, you know, total, total distance traveled, um, intensity for an athlete at any given time, but also we want to be able to calculate force. So when we see collisions on a football field, that kind of stuff. So we're currently working, we had a ton of people reach out to us and say, oh, this technology is incredible. What about this application? What about that application? And the, the big one, I would say, is, is the guy, his first name is Jason, who developed the strike zone for Major League Baseball. So when you see like on Fox, the little box on there and where it's predicting, it, you know, he, he's the guy who developed that technology using vision. And what he was saying was Major League, no surprise, Major League Baseball is the most interested in leveraging technology to improve the
1: sport. And all of the other sports are very re- hesitant, especially the NFL two questions. So one, when you're starting a company and you have all of these opportunities, how do you prioritize them and not, you know, try to go after all of them and stretch yourself too thin? And two, um, why is that on the sport side on the, why is the NFL resistant and MLB?
0: I would say, okay, two two reasons. Um, so let's start with how do I prioritize? The answer is how you prioritize the opportunities begin in the beginning of a startup is a function of your runway. How much capital you have. So I have a lot of capital. So I can, I can afford to bootstrap the company for a, for a long time. So we, and the reason, and the advantage of that is it gives us an opportunity to try lots of things without having to be hyper-focused on any one thing in the
1: beginning, right? Because you would need to be hyper focused on one thing to monetize it. That's good.
0: Right. If I have limited capital, then then profitability in the beginning is. That's kind of really- where
1: I was at. No shit, like a year ago with uh, my detailing company, where I was like, "At I'm like, do I build a platform or do I build like my presence as a local detailer?" I'm like, "I need to get cash in. I need to build the. You know. Yeah. I didn't have half a million dollars. I had like thirty thousand dollars. I'm like, I need to build." so like that 's why i 'm asking the question yeah so. i mean
0: I, i've spent
1: so I, i've spent i've spent
0: somewhere around certainly over a half million dollars at this point and for no return like no I, we haven 't taken a single dollar in yet because we now have we defined how we 're going to monetize the vision system absolutely we do have a strategic plan, we know where the dollars are going to come from, so basically there's a strategic plan it 's a tiered plan we start here and then we move there, then we move there um but right now we're testing a lot of applications, and let's say I I had a need to you know get us let's say a half million dollars in cash flow it, over the next eighteen months. Let's say that that was our yeah. primary which,
1: which, which I, would target, yeah.
0: Right, I would I would go and I would look and I would go. Okay, well we're going to be targeting coaches and gyms. We're not going to be targeting the end user there's because there's going to be higher yield, yeah. higher higher profit. It, there's a, a, you know, there's a, it's an economy of scale there. So kind of like B2B kind of right there. Correct. But so what we have is a, you know, a B2C and then a B2B strategy. And um, but right now we're testing technology. We're testing applications. We're not really charging for anything. Like when people reach out to us, Hey, can you analyze? Yeah, go ahead. We're just kind of doing it, you know? um, And that's because we have runway. I mean, the, the reason that I'm, we're able to take that approach is because I have the capital to continue to put in. I mean, right now, when we come up with an idea, I just go to the board and say, you know, I need $25,000 for this. And the board says, Hey, what's the return? And we say, I think it might be X, Y, or Z, but right now we're still in a research and development phase, even though the technology is ready for the big time. It's, we're only, we're only going to get one, one chance to go to market for the first time. And so I want to test all these applications first to decide where we go to market because I don't want to, we're not going to pivot after the first, you know, in that first 12 months. Once we jump in, we're jumping in with both feet. So to answer your question with a startup like this, how, yeah. How, how hyper-focused you are is based on your runway. And I have a a lot of runway. Um, So I'm, I'm able to test a lot of ideas. Now, for example, with um, when I started my first company, I had one month of runway when we started, 4.0 solutions when we, you, you and Vaughn had literally one month to make 4.0 solutions profitable, right? One month. So that was, you had a month of runway. We, we, this is different. We, we have a lot more, you know, I probably have a couple of years of runway before I got to turn a profit. Yeah.
1: I mean, to say though, that we had one month, we didn't really start at zero though. We were already, you know, we already had a good momentum going with the channel. If you look at that, we, we had from September to December where
0: we were testing applications.
1: We're, well, really where we were monetizing the actual product of, uh, you know, the mastermind. Right. But right. we were
0: testing what works and what doesn't work. You know, what did the market want? What does the market not want? What does the community want? What do they monetizing
1: not want? Monetizing the GTMA. Right.
0: We were doing that through September and December. And then by January 1, we're like, all right, this is the direction we're going to go. Licensing. And yeah and here's here's how much capital we have and we've got to turn a profit by the end of this month. That was a short runway. When I started Intellic Integration it was the same thing. You know, in the beginning I had 20,000 I had to you know, if you it, the, the whole Intellic Integration story I've told this before but I'll tell it one time real quick here and then we'll call it a day. When I I started Intellic in 2015 but I jumped in with both feet in February of 2016. So I started in August and then in August from August to December, I was testing various ideas and and building up the infrastructure of the business and then I jumped in with both feet in February of two thousand and sixteen and I had twenty thousand dollars and When I started the business, I had one client where i had one I had one client come where I immediately had a two hundred hour per month commitment on um, revenue. So for one year, we had a guaranteed 200 engineering hours every month. I had to spend two weeks on site every month, and then two weeks remote. What I did was I went to my I, I looked at a growth strategy where by I wanted to be doing um, 600 hours per month by August. So I went to the engineers that I wanted to hire. And I put together 1099 plans. So basically it was, Hey, I'm going to do this. And, and when I go sell the work for you, you agree that if I give you 14 days notice, you will come. As soon as I say the work is sold, you will come to me and work with me for as a 1099, you know, for this rate, um, you know, two weeks after I say, yes, we're ready. And I did that with a bunch of people. And then, as they came on board, we were starting to build up our capital, and then by June, we were purely cash flow positive, and we had enough capital to open an office and convert everybody to W two. So, I mean, there was a strategy, but when it came to Intellic, in the beginning, uh, you know, I I had to be profitable within like three weeks. You know, I I, I had no runway. There was no. That, I mean, I was-
1: yeah, but I'm, you already knew you were going to monetize basically system integrate system integration engineering.
0: Yeah, and it, gonna be, and it way. was going to be and it was going to be the approach we take, which is unified namespace infrastructure, iteration, uh we were also going to take the strategy do not, that
1: do not go deep and stay long. Do
0: not go deep and stay long. We're going to teach the client to own the infrastructure and then we're going to move on and I mean, it was a, it was a, t- there was no existing model
1: that we only started working together in 2018. Well, we started working together long before that, but as far as digital media, 2018. Digital. Yeah. Well, you were only two years old. Yeah. 11, until like, well, in earnest
0: three, but yeah, it was three. It was, we were three years old, but we were two years old in terms of like full time.
1: Yeah. It's like a baby compared to now, you know, (laughs) like I remember that old office, dude, like and we would go film the whiteboard videos and shit. And
0: if you look now, I mean, we're, I mean, hell, we just got a commitment from a client for another year. Wait. Yeah. For a fourth year at like a million dollars worth of engineering. Nice. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, if you look, I mean, I think most people, if they come here and they look at the kind of stuff we're working on, they're pretty blown away. You know, it's, it's, uh, what you
1: was know, the hardest, I, what was the hardest point, um, since the 2015? The hardest time. Remember some hard times. I mean, what were the hardest times though? Like, as far so as I did, a, I did a, the hardest was I did a reorg
0: in about yeah, six I months know. after we started doing
1: media. I remember that. Holy I shit. did a
0: full reorg and I literally, I literally, you turned money. over like eighty percent of the company. I literally turned. I literally took the company all the way back to four people. I mean, for a for a short period of time, for like three months, it was me and Matt were the only two billable engineers. For and um, and then we had the chief experience officer and the chief financial officer, and then right. you had me and Matt. We and, and by the way, we I we could and not have, me as a contractor. <laughs> we we could not. Afford. We 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 had. I think we were doing 800 hours a month or something. I mean, it's a lot. I mean, we had two engineers having to bill 800 hours worth of work per month. That's how many projects right. we it's had. A lot of overhead for
1: not a lot of engineers, basically.
0: Right. But we we did a uh, we did a big. Um, well, the 800 hours was what we committed to the clients. We had oh, that so many projects.
1: Couldn't even, you couldn't even fulfill that with two engineers. Yeah, yeah.
0: The, the issue was was we made a strategic decision. That in order for us to grow, the first thing we were going to have to do is shrink. We there were we were going to have to do addition by subtraction. I would say that was the hardest because there were I mean, people. You had
1: that partner there for a while, but then that didn't work out, and then
0: right. And I mean, I've had two partners, and in both cases. Oh had, yeah,
1: the first one huh? I had
0: two partners, and in both cases, neither of them were able able to make the commitment I made. You know, I mean, let me, I, I tell people this all the time when they, people come to me and they say, Oh, you know, I want to start an integrator or whatever. I'm like, you better be prepared. I, I mean, for 18 months, I worked a hundred hours a week and I didn't take a single day off for the first 18 months. I didn't take one day off on Thanksgiving. The first year that we were all, I was negotiating a contract with a tier one automotive supplier all day long on Thanksgiving day. I was out on the back patio. We were in Florida visiting family. I was on the back patio negotiating a contract for like six hours. So I, the whole Thanksgiving was lost that first year. Same thing on Christmas. I, and I worked all Christmas day that first year. Most people.
1: So most, the first year wasn't harder than that turnover time?
0: No, it wasn't. I mean, you know, we did a million dollars in sales. I mean, we did our Christmas party at AT&T Stadium our first year. So at that, I think we were probably up to like, say, eight or nine people by the end of that first year, and we did our Christmas party at AT T Stadium. Actually, it might have even been maybe ten or eleven. And we had a at that time we had a field services group. We we, we so it was automation, field services, and enterprise solutions, which I was in charge of. Now IntelliC is just wholly enterprise solutions, right? But we had like a three,
1: oh, yeah, I, I guess.
0: monster. Uh, Um, I'll tell two stories. So that first year we did a million dollars in sales by December. I think our, our, our Christmas party was December 16th or something. And it was Cowboys versus Tampa Bay Buccaneers at AT AT&T stadium. And we found out that day that we had broken a million dollars in sales. We did our first million in sales that day, but back up When we had a field services team, I had to go to China. So me and my business partner had to go to China and and do a runoff for one of our clients uh, in September of the first year. So we've been in business six months and we had a field services group. There was an account manager in charge of field services. And then we had a supervisor who was in charge of the field services team. And one of our oil and gas clients called us. This is Labor Day weekend calls like on Friday of Labor Day weekend, says, oh, we've got this issue. Can you come out to the field and take care of it? And our, one of our engineers is on his way out there. And um, the both the account manager and the supervisor called the customer and told the customer it was unreasonable to expect the engineer to drive out there on Friday of Labor Day weekend and that they could be there next Tuesday. Well, they had a well shut in you know what i mean like and and so i was in china and my partner was in china so it took a few days for the customer to get a hold of me and he got he got a hold of me through you know my chief operating officer at the time and i had to fire those guys those two guys who made that call i had to fire them while i was in china like i had to when i had the call with them and i'm like hey you know what's our mission here you know and you, did the engineer tell you he didn't want to go? Was the engineer telling you, hey, I can't do this because I've got X, Y, or Z commitment? And they said, no, it was their call. And I said, well, it was the wrong one. And you don't belong here because that was a client telling us they needed our help. And, you know, the, and honestly, that was a, such a small operator. They couldn't afford to have a well shut in. It was actually a pad. It was like four wells. Shut in for four days, five days. You know what I mean? And um, yeah, I
1: mean there were. It's also part of why your clients work with you is like responsiveness and just in general like that you care. I
0: I fucking I legitimately care about every person on my team. I tell my team this all the time. I'm like, I honestly love you. Like I legitimately give a shit about you and your family and like and our clients same thing. Like I, I see it as I have a re, a personal responsibility to make sure they stay in business and employ Americans, you know? Yeah. Anyway, we, we got off the beaten path there, but anyway, hopefully it was valuable. All right, Zach, Hey, thanks for joining me. Um, what I'll say is this, as it relates to this, this exchange with the forced hands and stuff, um, I'm all, uh, this is the last time I'm going to talk about it unless there's some new development. Um, but you know, the, the, the lesson to take away is values matter. Mission matters. When someone shows you who they are, believe them. Um, which is, I just love that, that line, by the way. Um, all right, Zach, any parting thoughts for, for the audience before we say, we'll see you guys. Let's do this again. Let's do this again. All right. Let's Let's do it next time. All right. Like, subscribe, comment down below, and we'll see you guys in the next one.